Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the latest episode of this podcast. This podcast is listener-supported, so wherever you get it, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It can be found on such platforms as iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Stitcher. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, we can be reached at archivett24 at yahoo.com. Again, that's ar. C-H-I-V-E-T-T-2-4 at yahoo.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Archiving Technical Theater History. Today's guest is Rick Boychek. Rick has been a student, a teacher, technical director, IA stagehand, designer, and inventor. He is a graduate of the University of Saskatchewan in technical theater and has over 40 years of experience. Rick owns and operates Gridwell, Inc., located in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He holds patents on the front-loading arbor and patents pending for the arbor trap and super arbor. Rick is also the author of the book Nobody Looks Up, The History of the Counterweight Rigging System, 1500 to 1925. He is a recipient of two CITT awards 2016, the Ron Epp Memorial Award for Professional Achievement and the Award of Technical Merit for Outstanding Achievement in the Use of Theater Technology. Rick can be found at counterweightrigging.com as well as gridwellinc.com and all of other social media platforms. Enjoy the show. Now we are recording. Hello, everyone, and I'd like to say uh, welcome. To Mr. Rick Boychuk, uh, historian, um, rigging entrepreneur, and uh, one of my favorite Canadians. <laughs> How many Canadians do you know, Richard? <laughs> um, let, couple. Uh, a couple, a few. But you, you, sir, are my favorite. Uh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, the reason I, uh, I uh, wanted to have the opportunity to, to speak with you um, was because of not only your participation with the, the Archiving uh, Theater History uh, Facebook page, but also because of your historical research into uh, theater rigging and uh, where it's come and uh, how you got inspired by it. And also, where do you see the, uh, the future of, of theater rigging going? But um, if you'd like to just kind of give an introduction about uh, your research and uh, where it is today, um, that would be fantastic. Uh, before I get into my research, I, I want to say, you know, um, I reach out to universities and I talk with universities about their historical research, and I'm finding very little of it. I, I think the number of people that are doing significant research out there is uh, maybe. I don't know everybody, but I've gotten to know a lot of people. Uh, the, the Wendy, who's not involved with the historic with a university, is doing historical research. There's Bob Foreman in Atlanta, who's a retired stage carpenter, not a scholar, but doing some fantastic research on on uh, Peter Clark and uh, the the 20s uh, in the 1920s uh, counterweight rigging world. Uh, Frank Mahler, who I've not met, he's at, uh, where is he, uh, Appalachia University, do I have to write that? Appalachia, I'm sorry, is that how it's pronounced? Uh, uh, yeah, Appalachian. Uh, yes, uh, and so uh, 
he, I've not met him. I've, I've read some of his work and he's doing some fantastic work on uh, Baroque rigging. Uh, uh, sorry, machinery. Uh, rigging is machinery. And, and I've adopted this term uh, uh, when I'm speaking historically uh, because uh, it, it's not just that stuff up top. It's everything that uh, that that we do, it's the machinery. But uh, I was I noted that the in University of Indiana, or was it Indiana University? I'm sorry, there are <laughs> I keep getting that mixed up. Has just uh, eliminated their PhD program, and which allowed for uh, historical research. I, I reached out and and got some names, and it was interesting that most of the names that I received back were emeritus. They 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 retired, and and. For some reason, we're not doing history. At, uh, sorry, it, I cannot find where there's uh, important historical work being done, and and uh, maybe that's because there's such a demand, and that I believe there is a demand for theater technicians out in the world, and so the the, the universities are are producing uh, technicians to go out there and deal with the world. Uh, certainly, when I uh, what I found, uh, okay, so. That's just a challenge up to universities. Can you rejig to allow for this historical research? And I'm talking technical historical research. Sorry. Yeah. One, no. One of the one of the things that I've, I've I know through when I when I went through school, um, it was a, there was a, a push for design, 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 design. We want to make designers, and and then it's sort of as time has gone on, the 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 pendulum kind of swung back. Where there, as as much as they were putting out, you know, for every three designers, there was maybe a, a one technician kind of kind of ratio, and now with the advances in technology, and now if you if you look at job searches, they're clamoring for for technical people to 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 fill positions. Um, but but to get back to your point about about research, I agree that there's um, it's very difficult to find programs that. You can find a mentor or someone to oversee, say, a PhD level project because there just isn't people to 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 to, to review it. Um, so I agree. I agree that there there needs to be more um, allowances uh, for for such things. Um, but you were you you were talking about uh, about the beginnings of your research and working with people who are non um, non uh, uh, not theater people, but non, um, what was the word? Academic you, scholars. Not, not academic non scholars. Associated with the universities. Uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, Bill Counter out on, on the West Coast uh, is doing a fantastic job on uh, 19, uh, 1920s uh, theaters. He, he's focusing on cinemas, but of course at the time, uh, this nobody knew whether vaudeville was going to continue or whether film was going to take over and so the theaters were built to accommodate both and so but bill's doing some excellent work but again uh to the best of my knowledge not associated with the university it's just this casual stuff uh and mike mike uh michael powers in uh I iowa uh retired uh, theater technician ex-marine uh doing a lot of work um but there's there's one thing that i'm finding is that the most of the research is done by end of career technicians or post mid career technicians, uh, and I, it's it's kind of what motivated me is well where did this from where did this stuff come? 
Mm -hmm. what, what, what is the history? And initially, it was a casual question uh, that ended up being a rabbit hole. And so, well, I, go ahead. The, um, there was uh, the Peter McKinnon at the Oystat uh, 50 event. And pardon me for forgetting Peter. Peter's doing some wonderful work. Thank you. He he uh, he had a great speech, a presentation that was titled, hmm, that's interesting. And and it's really like it boils down to that simple question. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting. I want to check that out. There, Peter, uh, my research began with a ca uh, it's, this is coming around to Peter. Uh, my research uh, started with a casual offer to contribute something to the CITT, Canadian Institute for Theatre Technology. And uh, I, I, in my research, I discovered that um, counter, the, it was about counterweight rigging system, history of the counterweight rigging. And in my research, I discovered that counterweight rigging did not come to us via the hemp system via ships. Uh, and and Peter now, Peter at the beginning of his career was in the Na uh, Canadian Navy. He spent 11 years in the Navy. Okay. And so coming out of uh, that presentation where I just, uh, uh, like I'd had five days with this thesis at that point. And, and Peter came out of the meeting. He said, Rick, you're wrong. And I'm going to prove it. <laughs> and, and I'm going to prove it, he said. And I said, Peter, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. So if you prove that I'm wrong, fantastic. Uh, so he, uh, next, that, that uh, conference was in Ottawa in Canada. And so next year I was invited to repeat it because uh, people quite enjoyed uh, the content. And so I repeated it with the same type of attendance. But uh, session after mine was Peter's session. And Peter had spent the year saying that he, uh, trying to prove that I was wrong, that that there was a, a nautical uh, connect, uh, the nautical foundation that that our tr uh, uh, rigging tradition was from ships. And he came back and, and uh, at the middle of, sorry, at the beginning of his introduction, during his introduction, sorry, he uh, walked over to the side of the uh, pr presentation room, on which I was sitting, and I was about five rows back, and he looked right, right at me. And he said, "Rick, you were right," and I was, I was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 I think this is a, this is a, uh, hopefully this is the signs of, of a, a, a vibrant intellect that you, you go to prove something and you prove it. You, what you want to prove, you don't prove. You prove the opposite and admit it. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about Peter is that uh, you know he uh, now now. Having said that, uh, that there is no nautical tradition. There's interesting. There's a of all. I live in Picton, Ontario. Picton is uh, a, we're we're on a coast of the Great Lake, but we're not okay. on ocean coast. But we have a, a nautical museum here, and it's fantastic. Uh, they, they, he's got books from floor to ceiling, and you, and you can just barely walk down the aisles. And people come. Not a lot of people. But people come from around the world to do historical research in the not in the nautical, okay. and we are finding further links to a nautical tradition. And and my thesis is not that there are no links; there definitely are links. But it's not the foundation of our technology. Rather, there is an intersection between the nautical and the theater. 
So I'd like to get back to um, what you said earlier. You said rigging is machinery. And um, you, you, you're talking about uh, the, the foundation. Um, if you could back up history to, say, a much more, say, concise point of, of where you think machinery evolved into what it is that we, that we know today, where would you say that would be? I, I would put that uh, the Vienna Court Theater, 1888. Now, I just rigging, uh, rigging. The, the word rigging is extremely interesting. It's interesting because uh, uh, Edwin O. Sachs wrote Modern Opera Houses and Theaters. It's a three-volume book. The last portion, perhaps a third of the last third of the third volume, is called Stage Machinery, and uh, I. I read it, this stage machinery portion, and he uses the word rig or its der derivatives once. And it wasn't in context of suspending things over the stage. So now, now he, uh, Sachs, uh, uh, Richard Pilbrow considers mm -hmm. Sachs to be one of the two most important theater consultants. Now, uh, Sachs wasn't a consultant. They didn't use the word then, but he designed theaters. And so so for, for, for Sachs to use the word only once is significant. Uh, we did not use the word rigging. There was a point at which we started to use it. Uh, now, I haven't determined that point, but it's in, well into the 20s. It may be even into the second qu quarter of the 20s. No, oh, sorry, the 20th century. So it may be even into the second quarter of the 20th century that we started using the term rigging. And so, so, so this nautical link it, uh, is made even more tenuous by our usage of words. Uh, anyway, but you, you, your word was about machinery. Uh, when uh, the, the original machinery was under the stage, even for lifting things above the head, a lot of the motive force was located downstage, under the stage. And uh, in the reading that I did from the 19th century, there, there was definitely a, a discussion of under machinery and upper machinery, and they called it machinery. And most of the uh, upper pieces, uh, the scenic pieces, most of the upper pieces were moved uh, by machines, they were, they were wooden, uh, mm -hmm. they were long barrels, they, they were uh, tambours, but, but they were machines. Uh, very little was done with uh, what, what we now call the hemp system, where a man grabs, uh, the operator grabs three ropes and lit, pulls something up, perhaps with the assistance of a sandbag. That wasn't a popular technology uh, from, from the beginning up until uh, the third quarter of the 19th century. And, and uh, I contend, and, and I need more evidence to this uh, to, to be able to support it, but I, I have enough to contend uh, that um, we, the, the, the hemp system as we know it today did not become popular until after the counterweight rigging system became popular. And the counterweight rigging system was very sophisticated, very expensive, done by the Germans. It was even more expensive, or Central Europeans, it was even more expensive. But they set the trend that we want to be lifting uh, a great number of pieces up into a fly tower. Well, the, 
less um, the theaters with less amount of money to invest in counterweight systems simply reverted to an existing technology which was hemp okay but even though it existed it didn't uh, it wasn't it wasn't particularly much used because machinery was doing that work and and so there was an evolution there and it's it's you, you one really has to dig into it and want look at uh, contemporaneous drawings and then see wow and it took me a long time uh, it took me, in, in my initial research, it took me months to ask the question, as such an obvious question, when was the first fly tower? Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, you, you ask one question, it begs another question, what do I mean by fly tower? Uh, is right, a fly right. tower simply a large volume above the stage? Well, we had large volumes above the stage, but it wasn't a fly tower because we didn't do flying, we used machinery to do that work. And when did all of that transition? So it transitioned over about 120 years. Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of uh, being in a presentation and having uh, the opportunity to work in a workshop with uh, Jerome McElberg. Uh, oh, yes, uh, yes, Jerome. He, oh, in Europe, there's really exciting Jerome, uh, Chris. Uh, they're, they're doing some wonderful work, but I'm sorry I, I interrupted. No, 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 no. It's uh, my, my my eyes were, were opened when uh, I had the opportunity to sit in that presentation because I had no um, understanding of of that type of information. It, when we did when we did our theater, when I did my theater training, it was fly systems. It was that that was how we we moved things on and off. There was an occasion to maybe have a wagon travel across the floor, but we didn't have any basis for understanding where that 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 came from it was just like oh this is what they do and working with uh the, the information that um that jerome and chris and and those folks have um uh brought across it's it's amazing that that type of ingenuity isn't brought forward that you know there are some things that we can really learn from not only a mechanic standpoint, but from a design standpoint and, and how to make things, make things move. Um, you, uh, we would, so it, I, I'm learning this as, as I go along, obviously. And, um, I am by no stretch of the imagination, a, a, a rigging or a stage machinery expert, uh, in the, in the variety of things that have obviously evolved, what do we still carry today that people would be surprised that was invented a hundred years ago or maybe even further back? Oh, geez, <laughs> so much, so much. Uh, you know, I, I posted something on Facebook. Uh, what was it about? It was, oh, question about when, when was the first scrim? It, it was right. actually, the context was about lighting but oh well, you know there's a special relationship between the scrim and lighting and uh, there are various uh, now again what i've learned is um what when was the first scrim what do i mean by scrim and so in my life i've become quite uh, quite i'm sure annoying to my wife well what do you mean by dinner <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, no, that's not a real example, but but I, I no, have I, learned <laughs> I have learned to uh, to question the question, and so uh, because when I first asked, well, when was the first counterweight rigging system? 
uh, I got responses back. Well, you, we've been using counterweighting for hundreds of years, which is true. Oh, but that's not what, what I want to know. So I had to go back and I had to define what I mean by a counterweight rigging system as opposed to counterweighting. Okay. Now, we do counterweighting in a counterweight rigging system, but counterweighting is not necessarily a counterweight rigging system. It's, uh, it, and so I had to step back and I had to ask these questions. Um, so when we look at your question was about what do we see in current machinery that's uh, that stretches back so many things. I mean, uh, for example, um, the portal drop. Now, different people call it different things. It's it's an integration of, of the legs and the border into one piece. And I know it as a portal. Other people call it a leg drop or cut, you know, so. Uh, yeah, a cut drop. They're working on the terminology, but, uh, you know, a portal drop could not exist until there was a fly tower. A portal drop was an invention of the mid 19th century. And those now, how significant significant is that? Not very, but it's mind blowing. Wow. Okay. So now we can do things in the mid 19th century that we couldn't do at the beginning of the 19th century because we have a flight loft into which to take the scenery. And they didn't. We we, uh, we were at uh, Drottningberg, at Drottningberg, Drottningholm uh, Theater. And uh, their fly loft is not sufficient to take a full piece out. Uh, even their their uh, their upstaged full drops are tripped because they, okay. they don't have the space. So so we had to invent all these things. Uh, the most recent uh, wonderful invention, uh, sorry, theft. Something, <laughs> something we stole from the nautical. I, I'm beginning right. to uh, hypothesize is the um, braille. Okay. Uh, and this this was uh, somebody posted something. It was a drawing from 2,000 years ago in an ancient manuscript, and they're talking about uh, the brailing of this uh, of this sail. And, and first off, I believe that they were wrong in what they were proposing about the photo, but they set me off on a journey. So I went over to see uh, Paul Adamthwaite over at the Nautical Museum here, and. Uh, <laughs> just to give you a view into the fellow, this this drawing, and I sent it over, uh, sent a PDF over to him, uh, had a script written, and I had no idea what it was saying. And and Paul Paul Paul's 85 years old, a, a very vibrant man, vibrant brain, and he says, mm, "That's ancient Greek. Uh, my ancient Greek isn't what it used to be." So. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I mean, I, we're dealing with this resource here, but but uh, we got in. He got me looking at what brailing is, and and, and brailing is the, the grabbing of a sail at the bottoms or the sides and lifting it up as a loose piece. Uh, now, it's very the result is very different than what we do, but in essence, we grab a piece from the bottom and we pull it up to the top. Now we use D-rings, which are not nautical. Uh, we might use a, uh, a batten at the bottom, which is not nautical, but uh, the term is nautical and the general description of the process is used in ships. So so it's, it, it's just very interesting to see, well, we, we, we steal really good stuff. Or, and I do believe there was a time that uh, uh, 
sailors, high-ranking sailors, were welcomed into the theater, and they they were uh, the, the tall ships, the sailing ships, uh, came, um, ceased to be the big battleships in the third quarter, at the end of the third quarter of the 19th century. The fly tower was becoming popular at the end of the third quarter of the 19th century. And so we would at one time have all these sailors released from ships because they were no longer needed. And the, 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 the stage looking for people that know how to handle ropes and, and work at heights. And so, sure. so I think that's the intersection. And that's where we get the confusion that, oh, well, our technology is nautical. No, it's not. We, we just steal from the best. Right. The, it, it's interesting to, to think of, of how one um, change, so when we start moving away from wooden-based sail ships and start moving towards powered ships of, of, of some kind, steam or, or whatever it may be, and then you have an in industry of very well-trained people and, you, and they, they migrate over to a, a thing that wasn't necessarily their specialty, but found a way to continue to use those skills and pass along those skills. Um, you talked about uh, one, um, uh, when Wendy, who is a, a mutual friend of ours, talked about the uh, the Scottish Rite uh, uh, organization and the Masons and whatnot, and their um, their role in uh, the the backdrops and a lot of their producing of morality plays and things like that. Um, there, I, I kind of have two questions. One is um, first about uh, uh, fly towers. Um, what do you what what do you suppose was the reason that fly towers came along? And second, um, with the the work that the the masons did, do you think that in some way that the masons had some sort of of relationship to this ever growing machinery stage technology? <coughs> I haven't found the first fly tower. Uh, I think it's uh, in, uh, unfindable at this moment, uh, but I, I'm trying to push it back. Certainly, uh, the, the Vienna Court Theater in 1888 had a, a, a current fly tower, a very different grid. That's a whole other hour of topic conversation. But uh, yeah. the the, uh, the, the Bourla Theater in where where is that in Antwerp? The Bourla, uh, the one that I, uh, uh, Jerome is really involved with. Yes, I believe that is. Yeah, they they have now. They don't have what I would consider a fly tower, but their loft is uh, sufficiently high that they were able to fly their pieces. And, and then we, we look at La Scala, uh, which and I've not never been to either Burla or La Scala. I'm, I'm dealing with drawings and, and images. La Scala uh, seems to have had a loft sufficiently high to fly pieces out as well. But that's from the 18th century and the uh, last th uh, last quarter of the 18th century, and and so they a lot of the I need to know more about La Scala. I really do because it is so early. It is built with a huge tall fly loft at a time when uh, at Drottningholm they have no fly loft at uh, at Chesky Krumlov they have no fly loft. So so is it simply a matter of more money and and like 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 La Scala has I believe five balconies for audience. So, uh -huh. and, and, and the, you take a look at the height of the auditorium and the height of the loft, and they're about the same. So is it really a fly tower or is it just responding to the height of the house? Right. Again, 
it needs so much. I'll tell you that falling down a rabbit hole, every question you ask, there's another question that has to be answered to ask that question. So uh, anyway, fly towers. <laughs> Uh, I forget how we got off, how I got off on this tangent. Uh, we're talking uh, just technologies. I mean, certainly uh, the portal drop is okay. something okay. that we've inherited from the mid nineteenth century and use extensively today. Okay, so um, so you you mentioned about uh, just recently about the the if they if they made a building and you know just to save time or money whatnot they made they made it. A box basically you know this was the the proscenium this is what divided the house from from the stage have you uh have you had the opportunity to to talk with architectural historians that may provide some insight as to architectural styles or or, or something to that to that extent no, no i haven't the the closest i've come to that and he's not an architect is oh geez at, at yale uh, school of drama um uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed I've, uh, his name escapes me, uh, but he handles production machinery. He's, he's kind of a historian of production machinery. And uh, and he's he and I have communicated a little bit with architectural drawings. But but basically uh, the the um, the stage house was the stage house and the and the uh, auditorium house, so to speak. Uh, Initially, we're the same building, same roof, same attic, same everything. Uh, eventually, uh, and I think this was um, by Bourla in 1834, the Bourla was built. I think we started, uh, by then, we're seeing a separation uh, of the basic structure of the building uh, between the stage house and the, and the auditorium. Has anybody ever written about this? I don't know. I've not encountered anybody, any architect that has written about this historically. Uh, uh yeah, I'm 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 not aware myself. Um, it's not again. It I've I've jumped into my fair share of rabbit holes as well recently, um, but it's uh, it's something that every so often. Um, so I have a I have a colleague here in Trinidad, uh, whose name is Edwin Ermini, and he's an amazing sonographer. But he is also very passionate about. Um, he was trained as an architect, and he delves deeply into it for his uh, for his classes. And uh, you know, I've just having this conversation with you makes me want to go and ask him that question: Is has anyone ever checked this out? Um, uh, but so all this information, you have all this going on. Um, is this what facilitated the the eventual writing of of your book, or was the book out of a, of out of a different set of circumstances? Well, the no, actually, it, the one led to the other. I made an idle offer to do a presentation at the CITT conference in Ottawa for what's that, 2014? And, okay. uh, and it, it was really uh, an offhand, uh, uh, Monique uh, Corbet, who's uh, gen, uh, executive director of the CITT. I said, mm -hmm. she's, I said, Monique, do you need more presentations? She said, yes. Uh, what, uh, I'd like to do one. Would you have space for me? She said, yes. What would you like to do, she asked. And, and I, I answered something like, uh, well, how about uh, the history of counterweight drinking? I had not thought of it in advance. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to find the book, I'm going to read the book, and then I'm going to basically do a book report. And, uh, and the, the book, of course, did not exist. Right. And so I, I, I found some reading on books, and I pumped, bumped into Sachs, Sachs's name, a little bit of writing. 
sacks, but uh, uh, but what I did encounter was total confusion. Uh, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle and uh, not, uh, I okay, you find this piece, you put it there, you find this piece, and, and they're, they're disjointed. There's a lot of a vacant space initially when you start putting together a puzzle. So I'm putting these pu puzzles, but you know they're not fitting. They're not fitting the narrative that I had been taught, and when I was teaching at university, that I had taught, and that everybody around me was also believing, and that is ship, hemp, counterweight, and, and then uh, electrical motivated machinery. That was the narrative. That was the progression. And when I, as I'm putting these puzzle pieces together, I could not make them fit that progression. And and so uh, it things got very confusing. I looked at the stage machinery of the uh, Palais Garnier, and and I'm thinking this is 1875. Uh, can I swear? Sure, go right ahead. <laughs> And the French are putting machinery into the middle of a counterweight machinery. Why are the French putting that fucking machinery in there? <laughs> and, and, and I'm looking at this and I'm saying, why are they putting those machines in there? And, I, and so I made the offer to Monique in January. I was going to make the uh, presentation on a given Friday in August. And I did this research and did this research and, and the Sunday before the Friday of delivering, you, you know, when you're writing an essay, thesis, per, uh, evidence, 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 and conclusion. Correct. I, in doing my PowerPoint presentation, it's just an essay, different format, form, but it would not come together. I had no thesis. I couldn't come up with a story that made any sense. Okay. And uh, so I had all these puzzle pieces sitting there and they would not fit the narrative that we'd all known. And so I, I hot August Sunday afternoon before the Friday, and I went downstairs to the cool basement. There's a nice bed down there and I laid down and I had a nap. And waking from the nap, there's this sweet spot between being asleep and being awake. And it just hit me, had nothing to do with ships. Hmm that our technology has nothing to do with ships. And so I went back to all of those puzzle pieces and they just fell into place. And oh, I said, holy shit. This, <laughs> and so that Sunday afternoon, late afternoon, I wake up. So I've got, and I have to leave Tuesday morning. I'm driving up to Ottawa. I've got other things to do Tuesday. So I'm driving Tuesday. I'm busy with programming on Wednesday and I, maybe I've got some time Thursday, but you know, there's always beer to be drank, right? So of course, so I've got about a day and a half to put together this uh, uh, this new thesis, and uh, and so I, I put it together, and it was it was pretty ramshackle. Uh, so Friday morning I'm presenting. I th this has been running through my brain for the entire time, and uh, and I so I, I get to the presentation and I start. And uh, I, I claim to be nobody. I, I mean, I'm not associated with the university. A theater history is not my forte, although I did take the two required courses. But, but uh, you know, in the audience were about 20, 25, 30 people. Uh, and and uh, a lot of them friends that I've known for decades. And some of them I didn't know. And some of them people I didn't know, but uh, were intimidating because they were from the National Arts Center and stuff like this. And uh, so I started in and they're all, they're, there's an encouragement. 
they're nodding their heads up and down saying yes you know they're saying and they're smiling at me and they're you know encouraging rick to keep talking keep talking yeah and uh and i get into it and and i i get quite animated when i'm uh, doing a presentation i get into it and i get into this thing about no nautical connection and uh, initial foundations is what uh, actually more uh, specific and about 20 minutes late into it I, I kind of stopped to look at the audience and it's like jaws were on the floor. It was like no more smiles and nothing. It was just eyebrows up, jaws on the floor. And then the question started, well, how come this? How come that? Well, why not this? And, and a lot of my answers were, I don't know. I just figured this out on Sunday. And, and so it, it was uh, th this whole notion that the foundation of our, of our industry does not come off ships, but I, I do contend now, I couldn't have said it then uh, with uh, such conviction. It came from Freemasons. It, it came from okay. Masons, not Freemasons, Masons. The, the technology used in the, uh, uh, in the construction of buildings was adapted and adopted into the, into the stage, initial stage machinery. And the initial stage machinery did not include any upper machinery. The initial okay. stage machinery was all beneath, and so so the movement from from uh, uh, masonry into the under under machinery was really pretty logical, and then it gravitated up. Uh, so, so they there was a, there was an impulse to add upper scenery, and so okay. the machinery is adapted. But um, anyway, um, then. My wife, who does have a master's degree and she's used to publishing and writing, she said, you have to write the book. And I said, okay. I can't write a book. <laughs> and, I, you know, I don't have the training. I'm not a scholar. And she said, well, she, she'll help me with it. She uh, helped me with uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, just the process. Uh, and she did help with content as well. And she's probably the second most knowledgeable person on the history of County Week work reading. Uh, she, she just... She edited the book. <laughs> and, and she's a saint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> 28 years later, she's still here. So what can I say? But you, you, but you did that, well. That, that's, that's how the book came about. So from January, and, and I published in, in March the following year. So 14 months, uh, top to bottom. And it was too quick. It was too quick. But, but, but Heather's encouragement was about uh, claiming the territory. She said, you've discovered okay. something that's important. And to for for you to be noted in that discovery, you've got to write the book. I, I remember um, when we we actually first met in person was at a, a USITT conference. And uh, I think it was I think it was Texas. St. Uh, Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah. And I remember uh, us having a, a brief conversation about about where the where the process of the of the book was because you had been starting to be um, receiving uh, I don't want to say critiques but questions about you know some of the things that you had found and some of the 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 the, the claims that were that were being said and you freely admitted that you know there is there's always room for something to not be quite right you know this is how I this is a snapshot of the time. At, at that moment, you know, you you just mentioned that uh, you said it came out. You you said the process was too quick. That 
um, that it should have taken longer? Well, a friend of mine, I've mentioned uh, the notion of writing a book to a friend of mine and uh, Peter Urbanek, University of Toronto. And uh, Peter says, three to five years to write a book. And I said, well, I've got to do it in, I've got to do it before USITT next year. And he, he just, <laughs> he's a good friend, but he just mm -hmm. scoffed at the notion of doing that. And, and, I, and I respect him. Ultimately, he was right that I should have taken three to five years to write the book. Uh, the, the concern was uh, that uh, 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 there were people from major universities, and I don't mean this to be derogatory, but sniffing around my thesis, phoning me, contacting me, asking if they could work with me. And uh, I, although I was receptive to it, uh, I've, I reached back to uh, one of my profs uh, from Lothos many years ago, and, uh, and he said, don't do it. Uh, he said, write the book. So uh, Heather was Heather was saying that, and and sometimes you have to reach beyond the house and she uh, to to get a, a reconfirmation. And and when yeah. Bruce told me to uh, to to write the book, I said, okay, well, I guess I have to write the book, and I have to write it on my own. Uh, within our industry, I've got to write it on my own. And but truly, uh, to to go back to Peter from U of T, Peter Urbanek from U of T, uh, he was right. It really needed three to five years to do justice. An example, uh, the, 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 um, the, the book is called uh, Nobody Looks Up, The History mm -hmm. of the Counterweight Drinking System, 1500 to 1925. Now, 1925, already a major player in the game was Peter Clark in New York City. Okay. I didn't even mention his name in the book. <laughs> I had just missed him. And a couple months after publishing the book, of course, he came onto the radar. Not only does he come onto the radar, I put Peter Clark actually as ground zero of the technology we have today in counterweight rigging. Despite it, uh, uh, the Chicago Auditorium was the first counterweight rigging system in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. It's a year after the Vienna Court Theater. The architect and stage uh, machinist from Chicago were in Vienna for the opening of the Vienna Court Theater. They took the technology back to Chicago and opened up 12 months later with their own counterweight rigging system. And uh, counterweight rigging system caught fire in, uh, sorry, figuratively, caught fire. Figuratively. In, Yes, in 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 the Midwest, and and that's why this all the Scottish rights. Uh, it was uh, Chicago uh, uh, scenic companies uh, that uh, really explored the technology and worked with the technology. But so so the the, the that was in 1889. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera House uh, in New York City, and I, I I'm imagining you're from Chicago, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm originally from uh, just outside uh, the city of uh, Chicago, but um, I went to graduate school at uh, Roosevelt University, which now oh. occupies um, the Auditorium Theater, and that's yes. where I, I I graduated through. So I've yes. uh, I've spent a lot of time in that space. Yeah, beautiful beautiful theater, and of its time, like really advanced. But there, uh, is is it fair to say that there's an antipathy between Chicago and New York? That they don't want to reach. New York would not want to reach to Chicago for anything, and Chicago would not want to reach to New York to a degree. Well, 
friendly to a to a to a degree yeah oh it's it's friendly um uh the the whole thing about the the second city um uh are you know you know very various things that we we like to 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 you know compete about you know they're small um you know chicago likes to think of itself um as as it was famously said the city of broad shoulders you know, it was the crossroads of America for for the time being because the trains and the and shipping and everything kind of came through that. And New York was, you know, on the far coast. It was the Easterners. It was, you know, the 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 Yankees. The the whatever it may be. Um, yeah. I, and what's nice is is that they've over the years we've we've each kept our our own identities. You know, um, it's 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 interesting because. I think they're Chicago and New York are one of the two places where if you, because if I said I'm from Illinois, for example, people would say, Oh, Chicago. But if, and if you say you're from New York, they mean Oh, New York city. It's like the only the two States that I can really kind of think of where a major city is the identity of the entire, the entire right. state or the entire region. Right. So the, uh, Chicago, somebody from Chicago, uh, uh, Dagmar Adler went over to Vienna to see the counterweight rigging system. Mm -hmm. But in New York, so that was 1888, and 1903 4, the Met wants to build a uh, re rig their theater, rebuild their stage house. More, okay. That's more accurate. And uh, the, they didn't reach to Chicago that had been doing this for 15 years. They reached over to Europe and they brought a German over to, to uh, what we would call today, consult on their stage house. And uh, Karl Lautenschlager was brought over and Lautenschlager, uh, uh, the, the geez, uh, Scientific American magazine of 1905, February mm -hmm. has an article about uh, the, the, uh, the Met, the new rigging at the, the new stage machinery at the Met. And uh, the, um, they don't go into okay lautenschlager would not have brought machinery with him he he was a stage machinist he wasn't a foundry he wasn't okay. a manufacturer uh now he so when he came over every all his designs were in his head more or less i mean maybe he had books and sketches but he came uh, his designs were in his head and he came over here and he uh this is now supposition on my part. He designed it here. Uh, an, an example now, historical research, we, we have to watch for the, the authenticity of the documentation. Okay. Right. Uh, I, I, the, the, the Met Theater no longer, that Met Theater no longer exists. It was torn down in 63, 67, somewhere around at, there. At some point. Yeah. And so, and we've we reached out to the Met in our research, and they only have two photographs of that include counterweight rigging and very little information about it. Uh, but so so kind of it's lost. So this the only source at the moment that I've been able to find is this Scientific American article. And and so now they they have a couple of photographs, but most of the documentation was artists' renderings. 
Okay. And, and so uh, th there is an artist rendering that uh, shows everything from the very basement of the stage house up to and including the grid. And, and speaking of the grid, uh, they had elevated head blocks going down to loft blocks that were grid mounted. Okay. Which is not European. European, they would hang their, they, they had uh, top uh, underhung uh, uh, loft blocks. Uh, they, the, 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 all, the, all the shivs are above the people's heads. Okay. And now that's not even totally true, but for the most part, that was the European tradition. Uh, there's always exceptions to everything. But uh, so Lautenschlager comes here and he inherits this building that has a hemp system in it, which would have had elevated head blocks and lines going down to grid mounted loft blocks. That's simply the way it was done. So, so that's evidence to me that, that he didn't come here and totally rip the top off and redo it in the European style. Uh, so he had to basically reinvent uh, blocks, uh, not totally, but but he had to go with the, the North American style uh, uh, based upon uh, the hemp system. But uh, anyway, Lautenschlag, uh, we're talking about Peter Clark. Uh, right. Peter Clark graduated from Cooper's Union's uh, uh, school, which was a school for uh, uh, engineers. Peter Clark graduated as an engineer in 1904. Peter Clark's father owned an iron foundry. Okay. There is no evidence to this totally circumstantial. Lautenschlager would have come over here. He did not bring equipment. He did not bring st ship stuff from Europe. He would, would have reached out into the community. To find himself a foundry. Right. Now, what's the possibility that he founded Clark's found Clark's company with a, a new graduate uh, as an engineer, uh, as as the son? Uh, I have no evidence of what follows. That Clark, I, I, oh sorry. Clark started his company with a buddy, and I forget his buddy's name. In 1905, this is all just too coincidental to be to be a coincidence. Right. to quote Yogi Berra. Uh, <laughs> so we've got Clark, who's a 26-year-old engineer, recently graduated. We've got Clark's father that owns a, uh, a foundry. Uh, we've got Lautenschlager arriving without equipment, but only with drawings and concepts. And we've got Clark starting his own rigging company immediately after Lautenschlager goes home. That suggests to me that there's a, and we need, more evidence, will we ever find it? More evidence that it was Clark. And then Clark ends up developing counterweight rigging system in, in North America out of New York City and develops uh, uh, hydraulic systems, which were also being used so. in Central Europe. Now they were also per being used in North America. So it's not like the only source might have been Lautenschlager, but the application into theater. Uh, well, no, uh, the booth, the booths, booths theater in 1870 in New York City uh, had hydraulics. I don't have much information on that. I, I, I have the brochure. They would publicize these theaters quite extensively when they were built. It was huge. It was huge business, and sure. so. Uh, so, so Clark may not have gotten his hydraulics from Lautenschlager, but but still, uh, then uh, by 19, uh, 
and and this is where I'm in touch with Bob Foreman at the moment. Bob Bob contends that Clark really didn't uh, make it until 19, or his his machinery didn't become popular until 1920. Uh, sorry, what was Bob's words? I forget. But but uh, supposedly Clark installed the counterweight drinking system in the, in the National Theater of Cuba in 1914. Okay. Uh, and I do have there's a theater in New York that Clark uh, did in 1918. So so Clark really we're, we're pushing i'm pushing clark's timelines back to uh, about five years after he is supposedly worked on the met with with lautenschlager so so but clark is like ground zero uh, what what happened in in what what happened in chicago with counterweight rigging is that counterweight rigging was the fries with the burger you okay. want scenic, you want scenic drops and we can provide you with the machinery clark on the other hand the, the 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 counterweight rigging was the burger okay. and so that's my that's where i think uh, uh clark fits in so he he developed the machinery to be a standalone and when we take a look at the the installation in cincinnati uh, in the scottish right of 1927 we take a look at the machinery in um uh, Detroit, which was also 1927 and a Scottish Rite, the one delivered out of St. Louis, the other one delivered by Clark out of New York City. Just they're both the same year, and Clark is like 20 years ahead in technology over what was delivered out of uh, out of St. Louis. Yeah, the um, so so from from all of that, um, uh, the with with uh, with Clark, um, I think. He was probably he's obviously the beneficiary of of the 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 German technology um, and then the consultancy from it and whatever whatever he had developed or whoever he had worked with or talked about and did the math and did the was able to develop a package that that pushed the 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 understanding of how this worked further ahead. Um, it's like you're saying he instead of making more a better fry he made a better burger. He made he made it so that it was you didn't necessarily need all the the stage mechanics because that's not what was needed or really the 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 thing that people wanted um, uh, in in their spaces. They like I I could also probably maybe think that instead of because if you're talking about stage mechanics having to be below the theater that the cost of having to build basements or or large large areas you know, two, three floors down to accommodate all this was probably cost prohibitive. And well, well, it, it's it's the capital cost of building it to be sure, but also the number of stagehands being used. There, nothing evolves in isolation. What what also happened in this time period is that uh, the first film uh, movie film was shown in what 1895. It was a novelty at that moment. But right. we're already being program, uh, programmed into uh, vaudeville acts by the beginning of the 20, very first years of the 20th century. By, by 1925, although talkies weren't there yet, uh, film was huge. And mm -hmm. vaudeville, although still pretty vibrant, was beginning to be challenged by film. Once, once sound came in, I, I think that that was the turning point for vaudeville. I mean, vaudeville, uh, the, the film could take us all sorts of places that, that vaudeville couldn't, uh, that theater couldn't. Uh, the, the, you wanted to see the Rocky Mountains, there it is, right on a film screen. But 
but what what happened what what we had previous to that uh, previous to film coming in and taking over uh the and this is what we're missing from history we we've got at the end of the 19th century and this is this is shown in the met when you take when you really examine the the, the met as redone in 1905 <coughs> you pretty well see the epitome of staging at the end of the 19th century <clears throat> with the staging at the end of the 19th oh uh, i'm going to come back to this point but i want to start elsewhere uh, i was at the uh, uh musée d'orsay uh to see the uh i want to see that half section model of the palais garnier and and it, it's pretty fantastic and i i'm i didn't have a good camera it's almost a waste of a trip if you go to yeah. palais if you go anywhere get a good camera before you go. <laughs> so, uh, so, and uh, so I'm looking at it and I spent quite some time with it. It's interesting while I'm, I'm standing there, this young woman, she, she's French uh, by her accent, she's speaking English to somebody who is English speaking. And in my mind, she's hires herself out as a tour guide to take people around Paris. Well, they're standing in front of this, just beside and behind me, just a touch. And she's telling this guy how, uh, this the uh, all the sailors uh, developed this machinery and uh, I, I said nothing i said nothing <laughs> you you bit your tongue <laughs> i i did i did uh, but but still i, I went over to teatro de la ville and, and got a tour of their fly house and they were telling me about how this was developed from nautical technology and you hate to correct people you hate you know i i, I sometimes i feel like I'm, I'm being pedantic just just say well no that that's not right uh so i, I i'm a bit guarded about when i say it uh well that's why i think that's why i think what uh what at least i hope to to achieve through not only the the, the group online but through these interviews is to to say there are there are other stories to to what we what we accept as the as canon because you know it, it's it's a story if you tell it long enough it becomes the truth it's like oh that's okay and it doesn't hurt anybody by by by, by having that story however however if we want to be accurate in, in, a, in a research or a historical fashion we have to we have to we have to take that story like like most people say with a grain of salt it's okay we we we, we accept that but however you know let's 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 blow this up a little bit because as you said these things don't happen in in isolation it takes architects engineers uh, uh makers whatever it may be and to 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 chart a little, maybe a little bit clearer path of uh, of of the arc of of the story. Right. It it takes something else. And and earlier we were talking about how a lot of this research is being done by uh, people uh, late mid career. Uh, myself being one of them. And and here's um, okay. So let's go back to Musée d'Orsay. So I'm looking at the uh, the, the uh, section model of, of the Palais Garnier, and I turn to my right, and there is a model of the Paris Opera House that preceded Garnier. And so, oh, well, that, that's interesting. So I go over, I look at it, at it, and I get some shots of it. And then I look to either side, it's down its own, own aisle, I look to either side, and there are maquettes. Now, were mm -hmm. they, I think they were original. 
they may not have been, they may have been reproduced, but there was no sign that said they're reproduced. If, if they're original, like they're 150 years old. <laughs> so wow. They're pretty fantastic stuff. But uh, so, so what they had is they had uh, uh, one of the shows for which they had maquettes and they didn't have the complete uh, set of maquettes was from Faustus from, I think it was 1870. And, and so you could look at scenic progressions. So you've got act one, act two, act three, uh, five acts, I forget. Uh, and then scene one within those, scene one, two, and three. And now this is where I think it's essential to, sorry, it's highly beneficial to have okay. design sets because in designing sets, you have to figure out how do I get from this one to that one as quickly and as seamlessly as possible? Right. And so, so I spent time there and uh, <laughs> I was there with Wendy and her husband and they're off looking at other stuff. And I, I text, get over here, get over here. You got to see this because seeing the maquette is one thing, but how do you get from this one to this one smoothly transitioning with no interruption to the performance. And as a, as having design sets, having to encounter that, I, I'm looking at this and I said, oh, they're moving platforms. They're not just moving scenic pieces, they're moving dimensional scenery and not just platforms, but they're moving uh, complete set pieces on their chariots and poles, including mm -hmm. platforms, stair units, and uh, and this is what Jerome Meckelberg had. He didn't theorize it historically. He said, maybe we could use them this way. And, and that was in Stockholm just a couple of weeks previous to this. And Jerome and, and, you know, when Jerome said that, I said, oh, Jerome to myself. <laughs> right, right. I said, Jerome, you're really stretching it now. But I'm standing there in Darcy, Musée Darcy, and I'm saying, Jerome nailed it. He nailed it. And I, I emailed him uh, when I got home and I said, Jerome, you, you were right. They were doing this. And and then uh, uh, so so what what they're doing is they're they're moving scenery in and out side to side. They're moving machinery in and out above and they're, uh, they're moving scenery in and out from beneath. Mm -hmm. So so if you start imagining, just just imagine just things starting to expand and disappearing as things are starting to contract and it's a completely different scene and it takes seconds. And right. that's, we can see these maquettes, they are static. We can see photographs, perhaps original photographs. We can see line drawings from back then, but you have to be able to see the set change in your mind in order to appreciate what they were doing. And now, not only what they're doing, but how many men and women were below stage and above stage making it happen. There, there would, uh, geez, where, where did I read somewhere? Like 150 stagehands? Oh my gosh. And, well, yes. And then, so so now we've got these these theaters with 150 stagehands doing this marvelous work, uh, these mm -hmm. effects, and bang, film hits us. Now, now, Effortlessly, we're going from location to location, wonderful, uh, glorious scenery, monochrome to be sure, but, but uh, and people can sit down and for a nickel, they, they can watch film. 
And so, okay. so then we end. That's where the that's where all this development from 1641 right up until I put it 1905 with the map. We have this most sophisticated machinery, and after that, the machinery became less important. Now, because we developed the portal at that point, we, we had full backdrops, we had legs, we had borders, and then with the portal, now we have a complete set of machinery that uh, scenery that could be suspended from above and moved quickly and easily by like three or four men, three or four flymen. And so that's why counterweight became so important. Okay. Because we, okay. all those things, all that machinery from beneath, we needed that at a point, needed it to accomplish mm -hmm. our goal. With counterweight rigging, we no longer needed that. Okay. Quick, easy, inexpensive by by comparison, and 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 robust. <laughs> so so the the basis now I, now this might be a gross assumption, but um you're you're hopefully writing a, a volume two to to a compare a next piece. Well, um, I, I, I've actually taken a job. Oh, I, I, I tell I tell people that writing a book is the quickest way to go broke. I'm not broke, but, but <laughs> there's no money in the book. I, I think uh, I'll be able to buy shoes for the kids this this winter because of that. But uh, it, writing a book is about something else. It, it's, okay. it's not about money. Uh, I've got, I do have a couple of patents and uh, they're, they're a bit of a disappointment. Uh, not the patents themselves, but they're they're uh, they're embraced by the marketplace is a disappointment. It's a disappointment. Uh, there's the uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. I was just looking at it just before uh, it's posted on Facebook uh, just today. Just opened up, and uh, uh, for those that don't know, I've got a patent for the front loading arbor. Uh, the front loading arbor. Uh, those technicians that have it love it. They cannot mm -hmm. see why anybody, and, and I'm not saying this, they've said, I don't know why anybody would ever go with the rod arbor anymore now that okay. this is available. But the Lynchburg Theater just recently opened in a, in a, a, a renovation uh, installed with rod arbors. And and it's not the technicians, it, it and it's not the, the manufacturers, it's everything that happens between the two. It, it's the consultants, it's the general contractors, it's uh, they, um, nobody, uh, um, few are prepared to uh, toe the line uh, to uh, putting front-loading arbors in. Uh, I don't want to make this a sales pitch for front-loading arbors, but but uh, there's the the, uh, the the royalties. It's going to take me years to pay off the cost of patenting it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And, and it's, it, it's it's disappointing. Uh, it's, uh, the I, I, I'm uh, firmly invested in it uh, uh, psychologically, emotionally, and historically. Uh, but uh, the the um, lack of the lack of the embrace of the buying process is what is what is what is, is that issue they uh they would rather save two percent on the counterweight rigging system by going with rod arbors and that's about well, what let, it, well, that, well, that's let me about, okay well let me ask you this um so one of the one of the the things that i i mentioned this earlier is the uh the the dearth of qualified people to be technical directors or various technical positions and um you know you're talking about uh, how 
I mean, I work for a university as well, and you know, we go through the the process of of, of bureaucracy. And uh, we are my, the university I work for is uh, is funded currently by the by the government, so it's a tremendously protracted process, and everybody has a question, and everybody has uh, a, a concern. Some some of it is um, monetary, of course. Um, some of it is uh, why would you do that, or a political question, or, or things like that. It depends on who you speak to, but if you could speak kind of directly to the the, the, the people that um, are make these decisions, who uh, who make these choices based on a bottom line as opposed to either a safety concern or somehow of an efficiency concern, what what would it be that you would you would you would say to them? The, the the purchasing process at the moment is uh, tremendously convoluted, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the the place the rubber hits the road is with the general contractor. Uh, the general contractor has to win the job based on price. That's that's the reality of the world of the GC. Uh, if if he can get a, a counterweight system. Uh, that is 3% less than the next guy, he'll go with the one that's counter, that's 3% less. Um, he doesn't know a counterweight from a cherry. He, you know, it's, he, he just had no cognizance. Uh, and uh, there, there are still a lot of manufacturers that are unlicensed. Uh, uh, the initial licensees wanted to restrict the quantity of licenses out there. So at, at that moment, I, I, I was in, not in a position of strength. And uh, I, I uh, conceded that, uh, but we have enough uh, manufacturers out there that they say to the GC, oh, it's the same thing. Whether they believe it or not, I don't know, but that's what they say. I, I know okay. that. And so, so the GC who doesn't know it from anything says, oh, okay. By the time it's in, it's not. It's too late. It's too late. You know, and so so they just live with them. So it's it's just a convoluted process. I understand that. That's fine. You know, that's that's world. That's the world. That's life. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, so all that comes back to the second book. It's going to take a little bit longer to get to the second book. And I haven't now. What what I am doing though is, jeez, um, I was able to uncover some pretty interesting stuff historically that we'd gotten wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was from the 19th century to the earliest 20, 20th century, and it has, I think, proven beneficial to us in the industry. We we now have a better grip of our history. Well, uh, I can't think of anything more. <laughs> I almost can't think of anything more boring than dealing with this counterweight breaking system through the 20th century because the system <laughs> itself uh, barely evolved. Uh, okay. It, Almost nothing happened. What happened in the 20th century was it, it was about marketplace. It was about the changes in the marketplace. But uh, so actually what I'm doing is I'm looking at doing, uh, I've started on a new book uh, uh, and, and it's, the, it, it's going to probably end up being kind of a history of J.R. Clancy. Okay. And, and, but it's not going, it's not so much going to be about Clancy as it is going to be about the industry. Because, because uh, if, if we take a look at the Clancy catalogs, we, we see the evolution of our industry. And we can, we can talk about, for example, uh, Clancy started in 1885, and the, the, the 
that's when theaters really started being built, uh, maybe 10 years before that. But we had thousands of theaters across the United States and Canada. And whereas Clark, I would point as being ground zero of the counterweight rigging system, Clancy was actually more important. Uh, where, where Clark did the development and Clancy wrote on Clark, I believe, Clancy kind of wrote on Clark's tales on the developmental side. Um, Clancy had, Clark was a manufacturer to installation. He did it. He made it, he installed it. He, and and you're, uh, it's not scalable. But okay. Clancy had a different business model. Clancy was a manufacturer into a catalog and whoever wanted to install it could install it. Now, that model fluctuated as well. But in, in essence, uh, if, if, if uh, and this is where the Hoffman company initially was not a rigging company. They bought from Clancy um, uh, Tiffin, out of, uh, Tiffin Scenic Today, which is a manufacturer of counterweight rigging systems, started out as a Clancy dealer. Texas Scenic started out as a Clancy dealer. All these major companies in, in North America, uh, sorry, just about every major company currently manufacturing and installing counterweight rigging in North America all started as Clancy dealers because okay. they could just get the stuff out of the catalog. And, right. and they, Clancy worked with them. And uh, and so then, then you know, why did that change? Why did uh, I, I hear both sides of the story now? I hear uh, Clancy saying how the dealers stabbed them in the back and the dealers tell, or sorry, how these current manufacturers when there were dealers stabbed Clancy in the back. And I hear the dealer saying that Clancy stabbed them, them in the back. Uh, and neither is wrong, neither are they right. What, what, what happened, uh, the, all of these, everybody was content with Clancy through to uh, post-war, post-World War II. Okay. At which time the market exploded. It, it was nine, I, I pegged it at 1955. Was it 50? Was it you know 60? It doesn't matter. I pegged it at 1955. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, states needed a state-owned theater. Cities needed a municipally-owned theater, and high schools have had, had to have better theaters. And all of a sudden, and and I, I would estimate that in in the 50 years. Uh, between uh, 1955 and 2005, we pr we collect the royal we as a, as mm -hmm. a civilization uh, probably built 30,000 theaters. It it and, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and the technology for 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 uh, scenery was the counterweight rigging system. So okay. so when Clancy says, well, they were buying from us and they they uh, started manufacturing from themselves. I wonder if Clancy simply couldn't keep up the supply and people had to turn to manufacturing themselves. It, it, it's not gonna be any black and white, like there, there are a number of things happening at the same time. That, and, and so in point of fact, counterweight rigging system is not rocket science. Right, anybody, right. you know, anybody with half a mind can, well, anybody with the inclination could manufacture one, but, uh, the, what what happened in the 20th century was a, a rap because of this was a rapid decline in quality because uh, you can build something that looks like a counterweight rigging system but you know what it just isn't robust what we had initially is we had the Germans when I go in Chicago Auditorium has some of the original equipment and the original equipment okay. is was fantastically robust 
uh, I, I've seen some uh, uh, 1920s German equipment, 1920s Clark equipment, 1920s, 30s Clancy's equipment. They are that they were using, they were better. And how do I know they were better? Because I've operated them. And I've operated uh, machinery from the 1960s or the 1980s that is not as well-functioning as some of this stuff from the 1920s. Well, it's uh, it's 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 funny because uh, when I first met Chris, Chris Van Houten, and uh, he took me to uh, uh, Antwerp, and uh, we we got an opportunity to see some of the the the, the wagons, the the wooden wagons, and then see their replacements, which were these metal ones. And it was funny because I remember he event, we eventually got in, into a conversation with uh, Jerome about it, and. And Jerome is very adamant. He he's like the, about how 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 much better the wood ones are because if one if a wood piece breaks, you can take it off, you can uh, you can rebuild it, and you don't have to re redo the whole thing. My uh, one of my first uh, uh, people that I worked for uh, used to say that about the the Altman uh, 360Q. He said I could take this instrument, throw it off the top of the building have it smashed into pieces i can go buy the parts necessary to replace it and i can fix it i don't yeah. have to buy a whole another thing and uh, i am surprised you know in in this day and age where we uh where people like you you see much more like modular modular systems so it's uh, think of like a, a space capsule uh, you know it's you have the lunar lander you have the the propellant you have this and all i have to do is take out this one whole thing and replace the replace it yeah that makes some sense however if something if only a tiny little part in that that one section fails you're making me replace the whole darn thing and that's yeah. just it drive it drives me crazy um uh, and it it it's very funny because I, I go to my my uh, my my bosses and I say, OK, well, we need to buy a bunch of new of these. And it's like, well, why don't you just order parts? I said, because they don't sell the parts. They don't. And, and I think that's where convenience comes in, too, where, you know, someone bought something from a catalog and said, you know what? I'm tired of having this. I'm going to make my own part. I'm going to make it. I'm going to do it so it does something that I needed to do the way I need it to be done. And I think. I think it's that type of ingenuity that drives some of these manufacturers crazy because they're like, you know, why are people using this thing that it's not intended for? And I, my contention is sometimes the best things that, uh, that they weren't intended for become the actual use of that product, you know? I, and, uh, I think that's, that's, that's a huge, uh, uh, thing to, to keep us moving forward. Um, I know that uh, uh, we've been we've been speaking for for almost a little over an hour now, which is great. I, this has been amazing information. Um, my question is, my next question is, uh, do you uh, will, for in 2019 um, will you be giving any presentations? Will you be doing any kind of speaking uh, or present engagements of any kind? I, I don't I ha don't have anything booked, uh, but the CITT conference in August is up in. Uh, the Yukon. Okay. So, so maybe I'll be speaking there. So anybody that's never been to the Yukon, 
might might uh, keep keep an eye on, and it's not, it's another reason to go somewhere. Um, I, but I have nothing booked at the moment. Uh, th this type of thing, it, uh, the the last couple of years have been extremely expensive. I've done a lot of travel. Uh, it's all been worthwhile. I, I just love mm -hmm. it. And where my wife is just uh, a saint. She is a saint, letting me do it, uh, letting <laughs> me put the money there instead of on uh, redoing the roof or stuff like that. But uh, the uh, I, I've got to sort of uh, reconstitute for for a, a year or two, and then I think it's time to get to this other book. Uh, the the um, going back to the Clancy story. I mean, Clancy was there in the 19th century. Clancy was there at the beginning of the 20th century when there was a lot of change happening. Uh, uh, the, the whole reimagining of what set design was by Appia and Craig and, and uh, Bel Geddes. Uh, Clancy was there in the 20s when there was a, where there was a, 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 a the roaring 20s, huge amounts of money. Uh, Clancy was there in the 30s uh, in the depression and they were still doing things. Uh, Nobody was there in in the 40s and during the war. I mean, they, although there were theaters built, but very, very few. Uh, and then in the 50s, uh, Clancy uh, saw the, the the establishment of the counterweight rigging system. Uh, and uh, and then into the 21st century, the, the movement, uh, we, we are we are going to there will be a day that we don't have counterweight rigging systems. I don't know when that day is. Uh, I, I've, I've recently, uh, T, current TD and T magazine, actually, there's an article by myself, by that. Okay. I wrote. And uh, it, it, what it discusses is uh, uh, the differences between uh, North America and Europe as regards the adoption of automation. And, uh, and, and right now, counterweight rigging is still pretty vibrant within the marketplace. It's affordable, it works, it's robust, it doesn't need much maintenance, care and maintenance. It needs more than it's getting, but it doesn't need much. And, uh, and so I think we're going to see counterweight rigging existing for the next 20 years. The thing that's going to drive us away from counterweight rigging is not technology per se, but people willing to do the work. Okay. Uh, I, I find that a, a, a rigor, a theater rigor, an operating rigor is a unique uh, person. Uh, seldom do they come out of the universities. And I think this is one of the reasons there's no uh, glamour to studying counterweight rigging. Um, most of the rigors that I find have come in via some other route. And uh, they, they, it's been about, initially it's been about getting a job uh, and subsequently it's about the challenges of the job. Uh, the, 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 the rigors uh, are are not recognized enough as being people, nobody can do anything without the rigor of doing it. You can't do lighting, yeah. you can't do scenery, you, you can't uh, hang uh, 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 video walls, you can't do any of what we do except that you have a rigor. And that's why we love them. We, <laughs> uh, we, that, your book, your next book should be, uh, shouldn't be nobody looks up. It's so the, we should be looking up. <laughs> yes. I, I was sent a t-shirt by a company. I, I had no, no dealings with the company. Uh, and it, uh, it, the t-shirt, their logo was something about, uh, you, you don't have to be afraid to look up and totally independent, uh, uh, the two titles independent except thematically. 
so that that was cool. But uh, right now I've got to uh, just uh, focus on uh, paying the bills and uh, and uh, but th this other book, uh, it, it it's it's percolating in there. It's it's and uh, it's I, I just want it to be uh, something that what I've gotten out of the study of the history um, is I, I see the, I believe that I see the arc of the development of our world of, of scenery and machinery. You know, I, I see what it, it start the, the beginnings with Sabatini and him trying to make things work with machinery and 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 not suc succeeding to move stuff, but it just wasn't working. It just wasn't, you know, it was clunky. And and then Torelli comes along, and all of a sudden, boom! It just it he just nails it mm -hmm. for his time. And then if that's 1641, and then through the through the balance of the 17th century, through the 18th century, and into the to the end of the 19th century, we just see it becoming. Uh, a, a, more sophisticated, doing more ambitious things. The set design they would have they would hire a set designer for each act. No, sorry, each scene. Mm -hmm. So so they wanted each scene to be different, and they these multiple set designers would have to work together on a given production. Now that wasn't everywhere, but that's how complex it became. They had these panoramas and these dioramas that would that would move and and you know they'd be changing the background as as they walk along on treadmills. The stuff we used to do it was just fantastic. And I didn't realize this until now, not not now, but over the last handful of years, right where we had gone. and then, with the First World War, with Appia Craig, Belgetti's before the First World War, they just had a completely different concept. And what we became through the 20th century was very different. And, and, not, and not better, not worse, just different. And, and, uh, and uh, so now what I've got is this appreciation of what we've been through as, as us, as, as stage technicians. And uh, I, everybody focuses on lighting for some reason. Uh, I, I started off as a designer and a loving lighting. And, and uh, although I thought I was a good lighting designer, I still think I was a good lighting designer. I could never hold a candle to what the people are doing today because of this machinery, this mach the machinery they've got for lighting is just stunning. It's, but, uh, but this appreciation of the arc of, of, of the history of, of our craft uh, is, is what I, I'm really happy about. And, and so the second book, I'm going to, I have to somehow more more fully convey that that mm -hmm. I, I read someone uh, yes I, I won't mention who uh, but not only from that person uh, that we didn't do set design before Belgetti's and of course somebody did but not only is it not true it, it couldn't be further removed from the, the facts the the fact is that that we had people doing fantastic work they were set designers we didn't call them that that's right it. we right yeah and and so uh so we uh, we've got to reestablish this 19th century uh, when, when i started uh, uh 
understanding what happened in, in the 19th century in North America and how pervasive theaters were and how uh, the, the, there's this interaction within and amongst uh, stage carpenters that they would move from place to place. I, I mean, it all just makes sense. It's, it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, but I didn't know that. I didn't appreciate the scale of it. Uh, we, we, uh, there, there will have been thousands of stage carpenters across North America <coughs> uh, up until, uh, and still beyond, but uh, starting in 1870, it, it's like the railroads really are what did it. The railroads allowed us, to, uh, it chose to travel. Uh, and so the, the acts would travel and uh, there'd be a stage carpenter uh, in every theater and there were thousands of theaters and there would be uh, yeah, stage hands, there would be flymen. And uh, we, we had a very large, broad community. Uh, did they know each other? Were they professionals? Were they full-time? All of that varied, but, right. uh, but there were people doing the work. So, yeah, it was about yeah. how you made your living. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I read of a death, it was, oh geez, eight, 1895, uh, the Sterling Theater in Connecticut, and uh, there was a newspaper article about this stagehand that died, and, and you get a glimpse into his life, he died up in the loft, uh, mm -hmm. because that's was his domicile, that's where he lived. Right, right. He, did, he didn't have enough money. He had, he had recently become divorced or, or separated, whatever, and and uh, he no longer lived in the house with uh, the, his wife, and and so he moved into the theater and he lived. And everybody knew he lived up in the fly tower, and and uh, and uh, he he died there one night, and uh, uh, and I thought, well, okay, okay, that's how that's how one stagehand lived and died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How how, the, abnormal, how how out of the ordinary might that have been, or how ordinary might that have been? <laughs> so um, uh, to kind of um, kind of uh, I, I know that uh, like I said we could we could keep going, and um, I would I would love to to come back and and, and revisit with you um, in a few months just to kind of fe feel uh, where things have gone and what the new year brings. Um, uh, you, you, um, I know you speak about like North America uh, as as you speak about the about the history. What would you say is the uh, the Canadian contribution to, uh, to 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 stage rigging? Is there a, a contribution that the Canadian uh, culture has has provided in some way? The uh, yes, there has been a contribution. It, it's been uh, more recent. Uh, Nis Niscon with its uh, Automation control systems is is cutting edge globally. Uh, uh, the Cast Group, I'm not sure if you know Cast. They developed WYSIWYG initially. Uh, okay. Now they're they, they're working on uh, they're staying out of motion control, but they're staying but they're into uh, uh, pre visualization and, and doing some very exciting work. I'd like to think that the uh, the front loading arbor is a contribution. I, I convinced myself of it, uh, but I think with justification. Uh, in Canada, uh, we've got two theaters in Vancouver uh, with uh, front loading arbors, the main theater and and a minor theater. Uh, in uh, Edmonton and Calgary, the two main theaters are both uh, the, the main touring theaters are front loading. In Regina, 
Uh, Winnipeg wants it, uh, Guelph here, Toronto, the Sony Centre, which is the main theatre here, has front-loading arbors. So, so in Canada, we, we've got good progress on it. Of course, the, the United States probably, if I was selling pencils, I would sell one pencil in, in Canada for every 10 I sold in the United States. Pencils okay. are pencils. In the theatre side, I say it's not a, a, a 1 to 10 ratio, it's, it's, it's a 1 to 50 ratio. Uh, there are that many more theaters. There's that much more activity, uh, more am ambitious uh, high schools, uh, not everywhere, but uh, uh, Texas, uh, Minnesota, uh, Michigan, you know, high schools, uh, a lot of them are counterweight and, and beyond that, California, uh, Oregon, Washington. Uh, and and in, in, in Ontario, with 600 uh, high schools, I'll bet there aren't a dozen with counterweight systems in there. It, 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 at, the, at the school level, secondary school level, it's just not mm -hmm. the same. Uh, same with the universities. Uh, there are, are 2,800 uh, universities in the United States, and uh, generally they have a large auditorium to service uh, not only the university community, but the broader community, and then they will often have a counterweight system also in the department. And, and so the university, uh, you, you don't have that here. There, there are probably there's less than a handful of universities that have counterweight systems in Canada. Okay. So, but uh, Canada has contributed, but uh, really the activity is in the United States. So most of the development will happen in the United States. And, okay. And if we, even if we look at lighting, uh, most of the lighting manufactured in the world is out of the United States. Uh, we, we do have a manufacturer in Canada, but they. Uh, they haven't made the impression that ETC has made. So, okay. But, but um, so, yeah. The, I mean, the tour in the 19th century, the tours uh, went out of Chicago and north in, into Canada, went out of Minneapolis, north into Canada, went out of uh, New York City, north into Canada. And, uh, and a lot of them, uh, most most of the entertainment seems to be in out of Canada. Now there's some Canadians doing a little bit of historical research on on the performance side, and uh, there there were a couple of uh, vaudeville uh, uh, organizations that uh, that were out of Canada, but they didn't go into the states in the same way. Anyway, I, I right, <laughs> like. It's great to hear. It's great to hear that um, that there that there that there are people out there like yourself um, who are who are pushing things forward, even though it may seem like at a at a glacial pace. There's a difference is going to be made. Um, so the if uh, so as I as I said earlier, as I um, you have uh, two websites. One is uh, counterweightrigging.com, which is uh, about about you and your work. Um, your company is called Gridwell Inc. Yes. Okay. Gridwell Inc. That's a, Gridwell, Gridwell is, owns the two patents, and okay. so uh, if people want to go there, they can get a look at it. Uh, it it's a long slog. Uh, I, I don't know that I'll ever make back the money on the that it cost me to do the patents, but I, I'll tell you something. For for those technicians out there that that see the front loading arbor, and and uh, fancy having one. Uh, we have had technicians go to the general managers during retrofits and stop the purchasing process to change the spec to front-loading arbors. Uh, the technicians 
uh, often we think that we don't have a say, and unfortunately, often enough, we don't. But I, I think a little bit of uh, uh, be, being a little bit bold. If you're if you're a stage rigger, if you're a stage technician, a TD, if you think the front-loading arbor is valid, if you don't think, well, I'm not going to try to change your mind. But if you think it's valid, and if you think that that's what you want to have, um, push a little bit. You'll find how, uh, probably find out it's it's relatively easy to get it. Um, the uh, I have seen uh, bids on the two and. There, there's like $100, $150 per line set difference between having a rod arbor and a front-loading arbor in a new installation. Mm-hmm. And uh, also for people that currently have uh, counterweight rigging systems, uh, we've had people convert uh, existing systems, just change out their arbors uh, for the safety side of it. Right. That's what happened in Calgary and Edmonton. They just looked at it. They said, you know, uh, lighting gets something new every three or four years. Audio gets something new every six months. Finally, something for the flyman. There you go. So, so yeah. let, let let let's help out our our fellow uh, flymen and riggers and give them some uh, give them some shine. Uh, yes. Which, yes. Which is which is certainly long overdue. The uh, uh, you're also a consultant. Um, I know when speaking with uh, Wendy with uh, historic uh, historic stage services. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do some work for Wendy. Um, it, the, um, the, there's a there's a nice inventory of uh, opera houses from 1875 to 1907-08, something in that range. Uh, and the the owners, the communities, the municipalities that that own them are beginning to see them as a, a valuable asset to their communities, uh, a financial asset and cultural asset. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's nobody else that has the experience and scholarship that certainly combined Wendy and I have. Uh, Her with the scenery, me with the machinery. Uh, Not Mm. to say that we're the only ones that have this, but uh, she's organized it into a a business to, to help these owners to make decisions and, and of course, as every, everybody would know, I, not telling anything you hear, boy, if we tried to use the old ways to do our shows today, we're going to have a rough time. Right. On the other hand, uh, when we pull out all that history and replace it with the modern, this is, historical is gone, mm-hmm. never to return. And so, so what what uh, HSS tries to do, historical stage services try to do, is is find that balance. And the, the, there is no one point where you get balance because for that community it's going to be one place, for that community it's going to be a different place. But what what uh, what we want to do is to get them to stop, <laughs> look at all of this, and then make a decision. Right, okay. Right. Right now, what happens, and I, I was out at the Redford Theater in Redford, Michigan, just as part of Detroit, and uh, I went live on Facebook at the Redford. And uh, one of the responses, oh, okay, sorry, the Redford is 1927 uh, um, uh, Shannon system, uh, J.H. Shannon. I didn't even know Shannon did complete systems. Uh, oh, this this is amazing. So I went live with it. And one of the responses I got from one of the uh, dealers or installers of counterweight review system was very simple: rip it out. 
And so, uh, yeah. Um, That's crazy. I, I, well, I understand the sentiment. If you're not looking at it historically. And in this instance, perhaps the only option is to rip it out. All we're saying is stop. <laughs> let's 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 understand this more fully in its historical and current context before we make that decision. Right. And and the decision might be to rip it out, but at least it's been a considered decision. And and on some level, you've 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 gotten the opportunity to document it to 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 to, to capture it at least in that state, so that it's not one of those afterthoughts where we're like, you know, if we had just if we just taken our time. You know, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And, and 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 this speaks to the Chicago Auditorium. Uh, the best information I got about the Chicago Auditorium was the Library of Congress, which had about 15 shots of the original counterweight rigging system before it was removed. Mm. It, what it taught me about what was going on in 1888, 80, 80, 89 was just, just phenomenal. To, to not take the time to record these things is a shame. You know, okay, stop everything. Uh, when I go into an old theater, I'll, I'll take my computer, I'll draw the whole thing up in CAD. So, and then I distribute the files. So if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, other people have it. Now, now hopefully it stays in the in sort of the, the commons and and uh, but but uh, we want to draw it. We want to we want to take photographs. We want to find contemporaneous images, photographs, uh, newspaper accounts. We have we want to find these things uh, and pull them all together. And so, if the decision is to rip it out, we know what it had been. What it had been. Okay. Uh, for for those people uh, that have been to Stoughton, uh, Wisconsin, Stoughton, I'm, I'm driving north on that interstate, whichever one that is, and uh, there, there there's a sign on the post, little sign on the post, relatively little sign on the post saying historic opera house. Okay, they had me at <laughs> at that, so I stopped into Stoughton to their historic opera house, and and, and I got a bit of a tour. Uh, did I sneak in and 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 tour it, or was there somebody there? I can't remember. I see so many, but uh, uh, they had. Uh, the counter, the, the original machinery, upper machinery, had been taken out, replaced with a modern counterweight rigging system, uh, and that's. Yeah. Is there any document as to what had been there? Fortunately, uh, the under machinery was still there. They still had the three traps, and and they're they're non-functional. Uh, the, they've been covered. The flooring has been covered over, so they can't be easily made functional. But they could be, if. Okay. But but you know we don't use traps anymore. And so, but let's leave them there for never take them out. Maybe right. someday. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, so uh, documenting them. This is where I would like to think that the University of Wisconsin would send people down there to to actually 3D model them in computer. You know, just just to have that, uh, just in case somebody comes along and and not knowing what they are does rip them out. Uh, this is where the universities really should be involved. They should have that. You know, we sh there are so many of these opera houses around that, uh, you know, and, and there's so much research. I, I, I say within from my book, there are at least maybe six or 12 Ph.D. theses that, that could be uh, jumping off. The, the book could be a jumping off point. There's so much yet to learn historically. 
And uh, so I, I encourage anybody that, that's listening that's involved with the university, um, there's going to be that one student. People keep saying, well, that's the history department. That's the history department. Well, you know what? Unless you've operated shows, unless you've designed shows, unless you've seen a lot, you can't appreciate what these things are. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I think it would be very difficult to appreciate what these things are. I think we should move it from the history department to the today department. Let, let, let's deal with it today. Yes. Uh, um, speaking, of, speaking of your book, I know your book is available on various uh, book platforms, um, uh, especially actually, Amazon. Amazon.com. That's the only place it's available. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. <laughs> so, so go out and be inspired. Go get that PhD thesis. Dig deep into that book. Um, you, you heard it from the man himself. That uh, it's 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 out there to 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 be to be mined. There's gold to be mined in them thar hills. Well, uh, I, I'm on Facebook. I, I keep expanding my friend list. Uh, I I keep it down to uh, stage technicians. I've uh, scenic artists, uh, technical directors, uh, uh, scenic designers. Uh, it's uh, Richard Boychuk, and mm -hmm. uh, reach out and friend me. I, I, I embrace uh, having more people there, and I, I try to keep my Facebook page on topic. I, I don't get involved in politics, sex, or religion. I, I, I deal with uh, stage scenery, right, uh, stage right. machinery, and uh, and people seem to enjoy it. People seem to enjoy it. I, I know I certainly do. Um, I have been very grateful for your contributions. Um, you've helped further a lot of discussion about things that you've run across. Um, you spoke about going live. I know that on you've you shared that uh, not only on your your stream, but you've streamed it over to the 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 archiving uh, theater history uh, uh, Facebook group, which is fantastic. Um, I like I said, I'm, I look forward to our next conversation uh, a few months down the road. Um, just to kind of see where things are going. Um, you're you're always welcome to 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 come come and 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 share more of of your knowledge. Um, I just want to say I say this. I think I think what you're doing is 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 excellent. We love you for it. Um, I I want you to keep putting out that power of positivity and uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's keep making a, a difference. Um, okay. Not only thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. But before we sign off. I don't want you to listen to this. I want your listen, listeners to listen to this. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us on this latest episode of the podcast. Remember, this podcast is listener supported, so wherever you get it, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. This podcast can be found on such platforms as iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Stitcher. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, we can be reached at archivett24 
at yahoo.com. Again, that's A-R-C-H-I-V-E-T-T-24 at yahoo.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Archiving Technical Theater History. We appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.